Talo for Lava. This is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suiswiki. Coming up. Coming into this tournament, we came in with a mindset of one game at a time. Fiji's women's basketball team are off to the semi-finals. There and more in our Pacific Games update. Also, we've seen the rich diversity and just the pride of our young people. There's been a big boost in a number of New Zealand students learning Pacific languages. And later on, call is starting to sound like a broken record because major carbon emitters are still failing to meet their obligations. Global leaders are urged to do more for climate-displaced communities ahead of COP28. The finals of the Pacific Games archery competition in Solomon Islands on Friday will be a French Pacific affair. It was a slightly windy Thursday morning for the knockout rounds at DC Park Beachside venue east of the capital Honiara, as Kuroi Hawkins reports. For compound men, top-ranked Lore Clerte takes on his compatriot Xavier Mongoen in the gold medal match. For bronze, French Polynesia's Julien Rovode notches up against the Kagu's Henry Shu. The gold match for compound women is a French Pacific derby with Aurore Cote from Tahiti going up against the number one ranked Caroline Balbi from New Caledonia. And in bronze, Solomon Islands' Georgiana Lepping takes on Anna Fifita from Tonga. The captain of the Fiji women's basketball team says the key to their success at the Pacific Games so far has been their singular focus at each stage of the competition. Fiji beat Tonga 75-46 to on Wednesday afternoon in Honiara to seal their place in the semi-finals on Friday against the Cook Islands. Kayla Mendez spoke to Kuroi Hawkins shortly after the game and said the full-time squad didn't do justice to the way Tonga started the game. My name is Michaela Mendez. I'm the captain of the Fiji women's basketball team. Cool. And the match just wrapped up. Which match was that for you guys? So we played Tonga in the quarterfinals and we came out with a win today, yes. How has how's the tournament been up to this point? Obviously big semifinals coming up. Do you know who yeah. that's against already? Um, yes, we are playing Cook Islands. You know, coming into this tournament we came in with a mindset of one game at a time not looking forward to too many people and trying to scout other teams you know we came in Solomon Islands was our first game that's who we focused on and so on and so forth because every game's a battle you know every every team's different so when we um, our coach talks to us what's the execute you know what what's the goals for the game we follow here you know get focused and that's what we do I take it one game at a time so that's that's the focus what's today's game um that score seems quite quite wide it looks like was it was it tight at any point or was it just a no it was tight you know they came out strong in the beginning so it was a wake-up call for us right like i said we can't underestimate anybody we can't afford to have slow starts like that you know it's a game of runs i always tell my team especially the young ones it's important for us to stay together right because that's what basketball is you go up you go down the important thing for us as a unit is to stick together and play through those yeah you don't get, you know, calls don't go your way. You know, we can't let that affect us as a team. We still need to run what we know we do best. Mm. You, you said that one game at a time. Yes. What do you know about Cook Islands? They're your next focus, I obviously. mean, they're very, you know, they're uh, matching up. They're a very skillful lot. Yeah, they have a lot of guards that penetrate and can shoot the three. So I know they're going to be running in transition, you know. I know uh, the heat is affected, but we all are in the same environment. So I think everyone's going to be affected by the heat. So I think that one can just be counted out. <laughs> But I think it's going to come down to, like, who comes out, you know, ready to play, to battle. You know, it's, it's do or die, right? So that's how it is. It's our last game. Because from there, it's whoever is victorious goes on to the final. So You mentioned the heat. How bad is it? And what are you doing to cope with it? I mean, I think, you know, slowly we adapted. We got here a week ago. So I think that was a good move to get here, get acclimated. Uh, but, you know, for us, it's, you know, hydration, hydration, hydration. We go back to the rooms, try not to do any unnecessary walking around 
relax, especially the older girls. All we do is go shower and go lay in our room, put our feet up, you know. So I think that's uh, we have a good group of girls who continuously remind each other to hydrate. So it's good. There's a big Fiji Solomon's community. How, how have they been? Have they looked after you? Oh man, it's been so good. Uh, we've have bananas ready after the games. We have you know. Uh, food all the time, anything that we ask for, they're always there. So it's just so good to feel the, the support. It's overwhelming. It's, it humbles us a lot, you know, to be able to see how supportive they are towards our teams, and, and it's great, yeah. Final message for supporters back home and around the, the I just want to say thank you to everyone for the support. You know, we feel it, even if you're not here. And we're so thankful for the prayers, you know. We, um, we're a, young, a mix of a, a older players and younger players, so it's very, very helpful to us. Eh? But, yeah, Naka. Mendes and her Fijian teammates will take on the Cook Islands in the second semi-final on Friday at 2.30pm local time. In the first semi-final at 12 midday, Samoa play Tahiti. The winners will battle it out in the Pacific Games gold medal match at 2pm on Saturday. New data shows over 11,000 students in Aotearoa, New Zealand, took part in Pacific language learning this year. The Ministry of Education has seen a 40% uptake since 2019, even during the global pandemic. Anisha Satya spoke to teachers and asked what it means to them. Not Spanish, nor French, but the languages of our Pacifica brothers and sisters. New numbers released by the Ministry of Education show Pacific language learning has increased by 40% in the last five years. Teacher Ali'i Muamua Bachelor welcomes the uptake. Extremely happy. Especially with um, with COVID. In 2019, only 8,000 students were involved in immersion learning or taking Pacific language courses through NCEA. Tiara Tais Feleti Pesefer says we've come a long way. It's just a, a, an opportunity for them to learn the language and learn the culture and then hopefully be the carriers of that and share that as they grow as well. Samon, Tongan, and Cook Islands Māori had the highest rates of enrolment, while Fijian, Nguyen and Tokelauan had the lowest. Only one school in Wellington offered Tokelauan. The, the main challenge is you know, just not having enough staff, you know, not having enough resources. Ministry for Pacific Peoples' Louisa Beluanga says events like Polyfest and Pacific Language Weeks encourage young people into learning pathways. Pacific languages are, you know, a cornerstone of our health and well-being and identity as Pacific peoples. While enrolments may be up, Veluanga says competency in Pacific languages is declining. Events like Language Weeks giving Pacifica youth a chance to carry the torch. We've seen the rich diversity um, and just the pride of our young people in displaying their language and culture during such events. Pesefer hopes Pacific languages will one day be a part of everyday conversation. Learning language actually goes hand in hand with learning the culture as well. Um, you know, it could be in doing the karakia in Tongan or in the prayer in Fiji and those types of things. For New Zealand schools and students looking to expand their horizons, NCEA currently offers 12 Pacific language courses. Global leaders are being urged to adopt a new legal framework to support climate-displaced people and guarantee their human rights at COP28. Human Rights Centre, the International Centre for Advocates Against Discrimination, better known as ICAD, wants to ensure climate frontline communities won't be neglected. Alicia Foon spoke with Director and Change Facilitator at ICAD, Erin Thomas, about the legal framework, which was created by 40 Indigenous climate activists and researchers from various Pacific nations. 
so this is part of our right to like the dignity project which we've been working on the last few years with over 40 collaborators mainly in the pacific but around the world looking to fill in some of these gaps that exist in international law around protecting people displaced by the climate crisis across borders now we're noting that most climate displacement happens internally and temporarily um, but one of the thornier issues that the international community has yet to respond to effectively is protecting those who are displaced across borders. Now, this is a huge concern. We've had uh, the likes of Tuvalu write in their constitution a few months ago that they still wanted to be recognised if Tuvalu goes underwater. We're seeing Australia-Tuvalu Treaty as well. So ahead of COP28, um, are you doing to advocate for this legal framework to to be taken seriously and and to get some notice? Yeah, absolutely. Well, as an organisation, we are a support centre. So we work to back the amazing work of our grassroots partners. So today was about launching our advocacy briefing on this legal framework alongside a training for advocates who are headed to COP28. But importantly, what's top of mind for climate frontline communities is the call to urgently phase out fossil fuels. Um, And this call is starting to sound like a broken record because major, major carbon emitters are still failing to meet their obligations. And the global stock take couldn't be any clearer, um, even in, in explicitly calling for phasing out fossil fuels and a radical decarbonization of all sectors. Now, it's really important that we have legal frameworks to protect people when their right to life with dignity is violated as a result of the climate crisis. But we also need to be holding accountable those major carbon emitters who contributed to those violations. So while we're looking to advance legal protections for those displaced by the climate crisis as a backstop, First and foremost, and especially in the context of COP28, we need to end fossil fuel extraction. Could you essentially break down some of the points of this framework? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the recent conversation around climate displacement has centered on refugee law. Um, And we've seen over and over again for a variety of reasons how there are shortcomings within the refugee convention that it's not suited for climate displacement for a range of reasons, including the fact that people move Um, often with climate just being one of many factors. And the patterns of this migration are going to look much different to the way that we've seen refugee movements in the past. So what we've done here with the Right to Life with Dignity framework is brought together the lived experience of people on the climate front lines and their understanding of dignity, which is underpinned in the spirit of international human rights law, with the technical expertise of major law firms Clifford Chance and Kingwood and Mallison's and our multidisciplinary technical team to figure out what's exactly possible based on the gaps in international law as it stands. So there are two major cases that we draw on to see what those present gaps look like, both the Tessiota case and the Torres Strait case, which were brought via the optional protocol to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights um, in the last few years. And these cases both opened up in dissenting opinions, this potential to explore the right to life with dignity um, as one that could invoke this non-refoulement or the provision in which countries cannot send you back to your country of origin um, once you have have sought asylum in that host country. Um, So we're looking at basically expanding that definition and embracing the vagueness in which it's been implied in these cases to really substantiate what dignity looks like to frontline communities, not just 
in legal language, but also with an evidentiary standard, which could be used in strategic litigation or in policy to emphasize that this is much different to refugee law and we need to treat it as such. I mean, I don't know if any country is getting it right. Um, I'd rather shout out the, the amazing activists on the front lines sort of pushing the envelope to ensure that governments are staying accountable to the people who are facing these realities. Uh, we've seen a number of, of movements, including the fossil fuel-free Pacific movement, um, really urging Pacific governments to take the lead um, in phasing out fossil fuels and adding that pressure to Australia and New Zealand. And in other parts of the world, for example, the Agenda Foundation case against the Dutch government has established, again, this government accountability and obligation to protect human rights um, as their actions actually lead to such violations to the right to life and dignity. And um, so I think I would rather shout out um, the activists sort of moving the needle and, and pressuring governments, reminding them who they're accountable to in calling for phasing out fossil fuels, because certainly these governments have a lot of different pressures being applied to them. And I think it's important to raise the voices of communities who are experiencing the harshest realities um, as we move forward. This is going to be extremely telling to see whether you know international legal protections will be adopted in COP28. But has there been any indication so far that you are being heard? I think there is some movement, particularly in the bilateral agreements that are emerging between countries as it relates to expanding um, just and dignified and safe migration frameworks um, that encompass the reality of, of the climate crisis. But that's sort of still the backstop that we're looking at. And of course, we want to be advancing legal protections for those displaced, whether that's through bilateral agreements or international law. But I think we still have to maintain the sense of urgency around ending fossil fuel extraction and decarbonizing, because if we're not doing that, our backstop is going to become our plan A, which is certainly not what we want and certainly not what climate frontline communities are calling for. And so I think it's maybe too early to say what the response is going to be. The global stock take was pretty shocking to read, and it's very clear on how dire the situation is. So hopefully they're hearing and otherwise. It's our job as advocates to make sure that we're heard, and so we'll keep on fighting. The United Nations Climate Change Conference is being held in Dubai from November 30th to December 12th. That's specific waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, so far so far.